Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Welcome to Sydney Ideas, the University of Sydney's flagship public talks program. Today's session is about extreme heat and human health, surviving and indeed thriving in a warming world. I'm Tony Capon, Director of the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, and I'm delighted to be hosting the event here tonight. We're into December and looking ahead at the Australian summer, uh, we can anticipate a number of extreme heat days across the country. And this has important health impacts. Tonight's event is about understanding those health impacts across the lifespan and also thinking about sustainable and low-cost solutions in the context of a changing climate. We've got four great panellists here tonight. Uh, sitting next to me, Adrian Gordon, clinical professor here at the University of Sydney and senior staff specialist at the RPA Centre for Newborn Care. Let's welcome Adrian. Next to Adrian, uh, Dr. James Smallcomb, research associate here in the School of Health Sciences. And James's research is about increasing human resilience to these extreme heat events. Welcome, James. <laughs> Next, Ollie Jay. Uh, Professor Ollie Jay directs the Heat and Health Research Incubator here at the university. And his research focuses on understanding the physiological and physical factors that determine human heat strain and the risk of heat-related health problems during work and physical activity. Welcome, Ollie. <laughs> and uh, our final pa panellist, uh, Dr. Georgia Chasling, who's also a research fellow here in the School of Health Sciences. Georgia's research uh, focuses on the impacts of extreme heat on cardiovascular outcomes among vulnerable people. Uh, welcome, Georgia. <laughs> so, Ollie, can I invite you to just open up and uh, set the context for this evening's discussion? Indeed. Thank you very much, Tony. So I think it's firstly important for us to set the scene and really accept that we live in an era of a changing climate. So if we classify the prevailing temperatures that occurred over a 30-year period in the decades between 1951 and 1980, we can categorise those days in terms of being cold, moderate, hot, and extremely hot. Using those definitions for that particular period, and we then apply them to the prevailing climate that occurred between 2005 and 2015, we can see there's a massive shift in the number of days in which we would, using the same criteria, consider hot and also extremely hot. Indeed, by the time we reach the year 2030 to 2035, extremely hot is going to rapidly become the new normal. So why is this a problem? Increases in average temperatures from a human health perspective when we're talking about heat are not what is at issue. What is at issue is the increased frequency, duration, and timing of extreme heat events, heat extremes, or otherwise known as heat waves. There's also chronic hot weather 
that people have to cope with for prolonged periods of time throughout the year in certain parts of the world, particularly more vulnerable parts of the world, such as lower middle income countries, where a lot of the um, products that we consume here in Australia are made. So we can think about the way in which human health and well-being is impacted by extreme heat and hot weather in terms of its impacts across the human lifespan. And it's really important for us to think about it in this context because the nature of those impacts are very, very different depending on what type of person we're looking at and what stage of life they are particularly at. And this is a lot of the work that we're looking at in the Heat and Health Research Incubator here in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. So the impacts of extreme heat on human health start even before birth. There's very good, strong epidemiological literature that has described an increased risk of stillbirths and premature deliveries following extreme heat exposure of pregnant women. We don't understand the physiological mechanisms necessarily, but Professor Adrian Gordon's here on the panel today to talk a little bit more about that context. As we progress into the early stages of life through childhood, we have Dr. James Smallcomb, who's working on a National Health and Medical Research Council project grant, which is developing Australia's first evidence-based extreme heat policy for child and youth sport. And we know that the impacts of extreme heat and hot weather on the well-being of children have been quite profound over the past couple of decades. As we then get into adulthood, I'm here to talk with my hat on from the perspective of looking at occupational health conditions. And then as we get into the later stages of life, primary aging and then the interaction between primary aging and chronic health conditions also serves as a massive risk factor or combination of risk factors for negative health effects of heat extremes and hot weather. And we have Dr. George Chasling to talk about that, particularly from the perspective of cardiovascular disease. There's also a variety of other contexts that occur across the human lifespan, which are kind of summarize some of the work that we're doing here in the incubator. Uh, we won't have time to talk about them specifically today in the first part of this session, but if any questions arise related to those particular settings, we'd be happy to continue those particular discussions. Another factor that I'd just like to quickly flag is that it's really important that we start to really not just think about extreme heat and hot weather as an individual stressor that's isolated from everything else that we're experiencing here on Earth. There are dual environmental stresses, such as bushfires, and we were reminded of that in the black summer of 2019 and 2020. There's also the energy concerns surrounding providing enough electricity to enable people to keep cool using conventional air conditioning units, particularly the most vulnerable who can't afford those, the prices of energy. And that's particularly pertinent right now as we're experiencing two parallel crises, one associated with energy prices and one associated with the longer term climate change. And finally, there's impacts of extreme heat and hot weather in terms of human migration in the future and also the secondary effects of extreme heat on waterborne disease and vector-borne diseases. And we're starting to do some work in the research incubator here at the University of Sydney looking at some of those particular factors. Now, it's all pretty doom and gloom so far. Indeed, we had one registrant yesterday who submitted a question, and it simply said, is there any hope? So we're here today to make sure that people leave with a semblance of hope. And this is the reason why we've established the Heat and Health Research Incubator here at the University of Sydney. This is a multidisciplinary research centre which is bringing together people from a variety of different disciplines 
to generate comprehensive solutions to the most complex problems that we face as a function of extreme heat and hot weather, particularly in the context of a changing climate. We're focusing initially in the first two years of our existence on five priority research themes, which are summarized here on the slide. Climate change and health, physical and mental well-being, women's health, built environment and health, and heat and health policy. I believe below each of those particular categories, there are just a few dot points giving examples of some of the things that we're working on in those particular areas. But that's not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. And we're building capacity as we speak. And the people that we have on this panel is testament to, to that, that effort in the first year of the incubator. So we're going to be focusing on solutions as well as describing the problems today. And that's, I think, it's a really important factor when we're considering how we're going to address these problems moving forward. And we encourage you to think in that context as well as despairing over the problems, even though they are indeed quite profound. Very finally, I'll just quickly tell you about a very unique facility that we have here at the University of Sydney, which resides on the ninth floor of this beautiful new building that was opened last year. I have the privilege of also being director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory, which houses a state-of-the-art climate chamber, which has been custom-built to simulate heat waves of the past, but also of the future so we can better understand the impacts of different futures based on different climate change scenarios right now so we can generate evidence to persuade people to act before it's too late. That's all I've got for now. I'll hand over back to Tony. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much uh, for that terrific overview, Ollie. And let's now uh, explore this a bit further, drill a bit deeper into the specific aspects here. So let, let me invite Adrian to tell us a bit about uh, the context of pregnancy and the newborn. Okay, so I'm privileged to start at the beginning in, uh, in life and on the panel. And um, I guess everybody thinks that their area of research interest is the most important, but the beginning of life is the most important because otherwise none of you are here. So, um, so we're interested through the incubator in research involving the impacts of heat on pregnant women and their and babies in utero and in the newborn period. So we know globally there are really uh, important outcomes that occur for pregnant women and their babies that are associated with extreme heat. So every 16 seconds globally, a baby is stillborn across the world. 15 million babies are born preterm every year, and that's the biggest cause of death and disability in the under five age group. There are other really important factors like being born too small, also hypertension in pregnancy, preeclampsia, and gestational diabetes. And they are uh, different prevalences in different parts of the world. But every one of those key conditions has an association in systematic review data and epidemiological data with extreme heat. So we know that for every one degree increase in temperature, for example, the increase of preterm birth and stillbirth goes up by an odds of about 1.05. So that's a 5% increase. And if you think about those numbers, a 5% increase on 15 million is something that we're definitely going to want to um, try and understand a little bit more about. And one of the interesting things and what we're trying to do with uh, members of the panel is to really try and work out why. So um, particularly for pregnancy, there's a lot of assumed knowledge. Um, there's a lot of things put on pregnant women that they uh, can't do or they've never been able to do, or they've been restricted from doing, much of that is not based on true physiological data. So there are concerns about physiological capacity in pregnancy, 
And there are definitely some things that are, are true, that you feel hotter when you're pregnant and you generate more temperature. There are two people. Um, but there are concerns about things like reduced capacity to sweat. And if you are trying to sweat and you're pregnant, might you direct blood flow away from the placenta to your skin? But a lot of those hypotheses haven't really been tested. And until we get more understanding about that, we won't be able to really inform really good solutions. So I could talk a lot more, but I'm not going to take away from um, the rest of the panel. Yeah, no, yeah, well, thanks very much uh, for starting us at the beginning uh, there, Adrian. So next uh, to James to tell us a bit about childhood in this context. Yeah, thanks, Tony. And um, like, like Adrian, um, I'm also a little bit biased, but I think children also provide a really interesting population in the context of the issue of, of heat and health. Um, and not least because there are so many different settings in which children can be exposed to extreme heat. Now, this can start right from the beginning, being pushed around in a, in a pram or a, a baby stroller uh, dur during the early years of life. And then we advance into the, you know, the time when um, children and, and adolescents may be participating in structured youth sports on a Saturday afternoon in the heat. Or children even may find themselves in very uncomfortable hot classrooms um, whilst at school. Uh, during the summer months. Now, with this in mind, children have often been classified and, and often assumed to be a vulnerable population in the context of heat. Um, and, it, and it's suggested that children are much more likely to experience adverse uh, outcomes when exposed to heat stress. Now, if this is really the case and children are more vulnerable than adults to extreme heat exposure, it poses a number of very interesting questions as to why this might be the case. Now, is it a, is it a question of, um, or is it a case that children may be somewhat physiologically disadvantaged compared to their adult counterparts? Or is it more to do with the way that, or the different ways that children behave um, in comparison to adults? Now, it might not be as simple as one or the other, and it's likely a combination of these two factors, but these are some of the questions that we're currently trying to tease out here at the University of Sydney. Now, if we just for a moment touch upon some of the possible physiological reasons that a child may be more vulnerable to the heat, it goes without saying that childhood is a, a period of uh, huge growth, development, and maturation. Uh, a child's body changes uh, rapidly during childhood, both in size and shape, um, and their physiological systems are also still developing. Now, with that in mind, it has been suggested that a child might have a lower capacity to thermoregulate compared with their adult counterparts, and particularly in their ability to sweat. And as we all probably know, um, sweating is one of the, the major avenues through which we dissipate body heat as it evaporates from the skin. However, some emerging evidence, uh, some evidence that's beginning to emerge from our laboratory currently, um, we're working on a big, big project that sees children come into our uh, state-of-the-art climate chamber to exercise. It appears that children maybe aren't physiologically disadvantaged compared to their adult counterparts. Um, they seem to be able to sweat just as well, and they seem to be able to dissipate their body heat effectively. So this begs the question whether it is perhaps more of a behavioral issue. And examples of this is um, it, it comes down to this notion of whether children have the cognitive um, ability to make good decisions when exposed to, to heat stress. Now, examples of this might be um, understanding the need to wear less clothing when out and about in, in hot weather, or reducing the number of layers of clothing. 
or it may come down to this ability to downregulate the intensity of any given activity that they're performing under heat stress conditions. And it's also probably worth bearing in mind that children are often very heavily dependent on adults to make good decisions on their behalf. So examples of this might include the, the youth sport coach that has the, who has to make the call as to whether the environmental conditions are appropriate for play to continue on a Saturday afternoon, or the teacher that is making the decision as to whether it's safe to send children out to play in the playground during periods of extreme heat. So I think it's this unique combination of these uh, potential physiological differences mm -hmm. and these behavioral considerations that make children such an interesting population. Yeah, no, thanks very much, James. Certainly a lot to explore there, isn't there? Now, uh, Ollie, tell us a bit about the adult context, including uh, work. Yeah, so thank you, Tony. And thank you, Adrian and James, for your contributions. Um, so I'll keep it relatively, relatively brief because I've spoken quite a lot already and um, we want to make sure that we have a, lots of time for questions. I think the way in which occupational heat stress is evident, it's important for us to think about the context. So if we first look closer to home, what are the impacts of extreme heat on occupational productivity in Australia? There was a paper that was published in Nature Climate Change in 2015 by an international research group, and they estimated that the impact of heat on the Australian econ economy was north of $6 billion a year. That's with a B. And this was predominantly through, not through absenteeism, but through presenteeism. And this is a phenomenon where, in order to try to prevent from yourself from overheating, if you're, it's an exertional job that you're engaging in, what we tend to do is that we slow down owing to the fact that we can reduce the amount of heat that we're generating inside the body. And that in, its, in and of itself is a behavioral um, protective measure to overheating. In an office environment, if we start feeling uncomfortable, then we know that that's going to um, alter the way in which we're going to be productive in an office-based workplace environment. Of course, the solutions may be focused on things like air conditioning, et cetera. So, but I'll talk about that, about that and uh, the issues associated with that a little later on. If we look a little further afield in an international context, particularly in lower and middle income countries, um, the dynamic changes quite significantly. Due to the changing nature of labor uh, law settings. So in Australia, we're protected quite, quite relatively well by labor laws which prevent exploitation in the workplace in most cases. Um, in some other countries, this is not necessarily the case because often people are paid by the unit of productivity, by the bushel or by, by whatever output they're generating from that particular job. So if we think about that and then we think about the way in which we naturally behaviorally defend ourselves against extreme heat in a workplace, then we realize that we'll slow down, we'll get paid less. So then there's this, this cost-benefit analysis that a lot of people will be doing is either they slow down, protect themselves against extreme heat, and have to work longer to get paid the same amount, or they try to ignore those, those, those signals that their body's giving them to tell them to slow down, and they push forward, and that's when they're exposed to greater risk of maybe not heat stroke, but certainly um, along the spectrum of exertional heat illness. And there's a lot of great work that is looking at generating some evidence that's supporting that, uh, particularly for my European colleagues, uh, which have uh, been part of the European sh uh, the Heat Shield project, which James was actually a part of before he joined just here at the University of Sydney. Maybe we'll touch on some of that information a little later on. But I think it's that context, or that, that concept, beg pardon, of climate justice. The people who are responsible for contributing the most to climate change often don't feel 
the consequences as much of those who can contribute less. And that's um, certainly so in an occupational context. Well, thanks very much, Ollie. And I know uh, in the incubator, you're doing really interesting work, I think, with support from the Wellcome Trust in uh, Bangladeshi garment factories. That's uh, very relevant to this work context. So let's um, come now uh, to Georgia to tell us a bit about ageing in, in this context, in, including cardiovascular disease. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Tony. I think continuing the trend on looking at the negative effects of heat on population well-being, I'm interested in looking at the association between extreme heat and ageing and chronic disease as well. Um, unfortunately, a lot of um, increase in hospitalizations and mortalities that we see during extreme heat events do occur in adults over the age of 60 years old. And we see about 80% of these deaths are due to cardiovascular risks. Um, people who do have cardiovascular disease are at an extremely increased risk of going to the hospital or, unfortunately, mortality during extreme heat events. Um, and again, continuing the trend of understanding why. We don't really understand the mechanisms that can explain this increased risk. So a lot of the work that I'm interested in doing is trying to understand why these individuals are at a greater risk and what can we do to absolutely protect them um, from harm during extreme heat events. So I don't think I need to touch on that <laughs> much more. <laughs> Great. Well, look, uh, thanks very much. I think you've given us uh, a good overview of the, the, this life course understanding of heat and health. And as Ollie said uh, earlier, we want to now get to the hopeful bit uh, about what are some of those potential solutions, including those sustainable solutions that are lower cost, lower carbon uh, solutions in this context. So uh, perhaps beginning again at the beginning of life, Adrian, uh, tell us about what we know about solutions uh, in pregnancy and uh, the neonatal period. Yeah. So I think, I guess the first thing to say is we don't know very much because pregnant women are continually excluded from randomised trials or clinical trials because of the nature of being pregnant. And we've seen that most recently with the COVID pandemic. Um, so I was part of the National Task Force for Living Guidelines for the country for COVID. And, you know, so much evidence coming out every week no pregnant women included in any clinical trials, uh, tiny percentages, um, no data on safety, and really didn't get included in all of that work until it was about safety of vaccination. So I guess the first thing to say is, if we're going to have solutions for pregnant women, we need to include them in research and we need to include them in clinical trials. Um, we also need to understand, as I said earlier, a little bit more about the unique physiology in pregnancy and what is different and what might not be so different, but we have thought it was. So James and Ollie have led a climate chamber study that was published a little while ago, um, randomizing pregnant women in the ergonomics lab to different temperatures and actually found that up to about 32 degrees, there was actually no thermoregulatory impairment. So some of the reasons that, that we don't include pregnant women in such studies might actually not be true. And now that we've got better ways to understand that, I think that's a really important place to start. I think some of the solutions will come down to things like policy that might affect work habits and culture for pregnancy. Um, in many countries in the world, pregnant women are the workforce, particularly in rural or subsistence areas where they're often doing a lot of the farming. 
They're doing that right up until they have the baby. They're doing it afterwards with the baby on their back. So there might need to be some very low-cost solutions to actually maintain a workforce, but do that safely. So I think we've got a long way to go, and I think we can follow some of the solutions and work that's happened in other populations. Um, but I think it's a very important population to start including. Yeah. Uh, great. Thanks, Adrian. And I think that's a, a really terrific message about... Uh, this Heaton Health Research Incubator, that it's really challenging some of this received wisdom in our understandings of relationships between heat and human health and the kinds of solutions that we need uh, to be exploring. So, James, uh, the context of childhood, what, what are we learning uh, in, in that context? Yes, absolutely. Um, and just before I move on to, to children, I think it's just worth touching back on um, the, the study that Adrian alluded to there. Um, it was a really interesting study. We, we got um, about, about 20 pregnant women to come and exercise in the climate chamber. And despite them exercising for 45 minutes at a pretty moderate intensity, their, their, their rise in core body temperature was no different to non-pregnant women. And importantly, these pregnant women got nowhere near what is thought to be the critical safe threshold for core body temperature. So this, to us, was good evidence that women can safely exercise in the heat, mm. which I think is a, you know, a very useful finding. Moving on to the, the context of the pediatric population, similar to the, to the pregnant women, I think the, the take-home message is there's still quite a lot of work that needs to be done. But the good news is that over the last two years, we really have kick-started this line of research in the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory. As Ollie alluded to, we currently hold an NHMRC-funded project, um, which is designed to systematically examine the thermoregulatory responses of children as they develop through childhood and into adolescence. And the real aim here is to establish whether their thermoregulatory capacity changes with advancing age, and if so, how these responses may differ to those of adults. Now, the big picture kind of um, side of this, this project is we hope that these data will help us inform an evidence-based extreme heat policy for youth sport in Australia. Now, we are you know, working on this behind the scenes, and our ultimate hope is that next, early next year, this will be rolled out in some kind of um, app form, which end users can log on to, whether it be coaches or parents, select the type of activity the children are likely to be engaging in, and then based on the prevailing environmental conditions at that time, we can provide an overall risk score for, for youth sport, but also essentially um, evidence-based strategies that coaches, teachers, children can employ to help keep ch uh, children both cool and safe during um, periods of extreme heat. And I'm not sure whether the, the app is something that Ollie might like to discuss in a little more detail in a slightly different context. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thanks very much, James. And so back to adulthood and uh, yes. that work context. Yeah. Thank you, Tony. Um, yeah, so I'll just briefly touch on two things. Um, the way we'll categorise them are changes in policy, so work that's been done in that context, and then interventions that can be used in the workplace that don't contribute to the problem further down the line. So first of all, if we focus on policy, now this is not necessarily work that we've done, but um, good colleagues of ours have have done in Europe. And probably the best exemplar of this type of work is some work that's been done by a colleague of ours in, in our field called Andreas Flores, who's worked in Qatar uh, tr trying to better characterise the um, 
the impact of extreme heat on uh, occupational workers in the preparation to the World Cup, which is taking place right now. And obviously, that's very well documented, the, um, the impacts that that has had in terms of worker mortality. And what Andreas's team did, alongside uh, a bunch of other colleagues as well, um, is that they uh, tried to better understand what the problem was. They then used physiological evidence from people who understand how the human body thermoregulates and implemented that in the context of changing changes in work policy. And they've got some really strong data demonstrating really quite a dramatic reduction in workplace mortality and morbidity due to extreme heat since the implementation of those policies. And those policies might be something similar as ensuring that there's adequate breaks for recovery of body core temperature, um, adequate opportunities and supply of hydration. Some other work from um, Lars Nebo in Copenhagen, where they've demonstrated that agricultural workers um, in Europe often arrive at work dehydrate in a dehydrated state already before they even start work and are exposed to these extreme heat conditions. So the provision of resources that enable people to, to maintain their thermoregulatory status, it might seem simple, but ensuring that these are embedded in policy is a really powerful way mm. of ensuring that it's translated to changes in health outcomes. And I think that's a really nice example. In fact, some of that work was featured on the cover of Time magazine just before the start of, of the World Cup. So congratulations to them. In terms of interventions, the one thing I'd like to talk about is this notion, and people who know me will not be surprised that I'm going to talk about this, this idea of moving air more and chilling it less. We've been quite preoccupied for a long time now thinking that the only way to cool the human body is by reducing the temperature that, of the air that people are exposed to. But we exchange heat with the environment through a variety of different pathways, and one of them is a process called convection, which is accelerated by air movement. And what it means is that you can lose the same amount of heat, feel pretty much the same thermal status, but with a, with a warmer temperature with a higher airflow, such as moving air more with residential fans within an ambient air velocity range, which remains comfortable for other reasons, which uh, Professor Richard Dede is here, will be able to talk about that in far more detail than I can and with more authority. But within these ranges of air velocity, what we model is that people can maintain the same thermal experience, but at higher temperatures, which means that you can set your thermostat of your air conditioning unit to about four degrees Celsius warmer. This means the air conditioning unit will turn on later in the day, it'll turn off earlier in the day, that means it'll be on for a shorter period of time, and some days it might, you know, might not even be used at all, whereas in still air conditions it would be. And collaborating with our colleagues um, of sustainability, led by Professor Manfred Lenson and Aaron Ema Malik, we estimated that the reduction in electricity usage and cost for cooling when using this approach, this fan-first cooling approach, saves 70% of electricity use for cooling throughout a typical year here in Australia. So if there's one thing that people can do at the end of this particular talk today, if you go home throughout the summer, if you use air conditioning, consider turning up that, uh, that set point by about three or four degrees and invest in the fan, and you should feel exactly the same, but your bills will be far lower. And that's really important in the context that we're finding with so soaring energy prices as well. But that's a solution that can be used in a variety of different contexts, including indoor working environments. Great. You know, thanks, Ollie. And clearly, uh, as Ollie points out, uh, in the most recent northern summer, uh, where the governments of uh, 
Italy and Spain uh, were requiring yeah. people to increase uh, the set point uh, of uh, the cooling systems in buildings, uh, this understanding of the importance of uh, moving the air as well as cooling it uh, is really a fundamental understanding that we seem to have lost. I remember when, when I was a child growing up uh, in Brisbane, uh, nobody had uh, air conditioning and we, we all used fans. And so, you know, there's been a rapid change of context in, mm. in Australia and we seem to have lost this understanding and um, the Heat and Health Incubator is, is trying to reclaim the understanding in part of this work. Uh, Georgia, tell us a bit about the ageing context and the solutions that we're finding. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So it kind of continues on the theme of, um, you know, air conditioning is quite protective in extreme heat events for um, any vulnerable populations, but we need to kind of look at ways that we can protect these populations um, for people who don't have access to air conditioning, who can't afford air conditioning use as well. So one part of my research is, you know, we're, we're trying to understand why older adults and people with cardiovascular disease are at greater risk during extreme heat, but also finding solutions to protect them in the meantime as well. So I've spent quite a lot of years conducting research using the climate chamber here on level nine, where we do simulate heat waves and we're looking at different cooling strategies that can be used during both hot and humid heat waves and hot and dry heat waves. So we can look at two different contexts. So one thing that's important to understand about people over the age of 60 is that they do have a reduced capacity to produce sweat. So this means that they're not able to lose as much heat from their body um, as someone who's maybe between 18 to 40 years old. So uh, one strategy that you can look at is something as simple as as putting cold water on your skin um, that can help you, once you evaporate that water, can help you to lose uh, heat from the body. But fan use is, is quite beneficial in the context of extreme heat, um, especially in very humid heat waves uh, where you are producing a lot of sweat. It's going to help that sweat to evaporate from your body and help you to lose heat. And then even combining skin wetting uh, with fan use, um, but extending that to just things like uh, going to a swimming pool or having a cold shower getting a sponge and dabbing yourself with cold water. These are all very simple strategies that are low cost, consume no carbon or very minimal if you use a fan, very economical for a lot of populations as well. So that's a lot of the research that we're doing. Um, and again, just to follow on what Adrian was saying before, um, you know, a lot of research doesn't include pregnant women, but a lot of research doesn't include people with cardiovascular disease because mm. people are so concerned just to you know, think about exposing these people to the heat um, with fear of what might happen. Uh, we know that there's an increased cardiovascular strain. The heart has to work a lot harder when we're exposed to a hot environment, but it's understanding how hard does the heart work and how much heat is too much heat before we, we start to see some negative effects. And that's some of the work that myself with Ollie and, and the Heat and Health Research Incubator are, are trying to understand as well. Great. Well, thanks very much, Georgia. So just as we close, I might uh, invite the panellists to say one final message, like a takeaway message, if you like, yeah. uh, from tonight's discussion that uh, potentially might be useful um, here in Sydney uh, and around Australia in the coming summer. So uh, what would the, the takeaway message be? Where should we start? <laughs> you start, there. start at that end so uh, Adrian can figure one out. <laughs> 
I recognise that look. <laughs> I actually thought about this earlier this afternoon because oh, oh, yeah. I was I was thinking about a lot of the topics that we were talking about, and I feel like it's a lot of doom and gloom. Like, you know, heat is bad, people are dying, people are going to hospital, and I was kind of thinking about like, you know. You get presented with such a big problem, but, you know, we as humans have to adapt. Like, it's only going to get warmer and we need to learn to not run from our problem. We need to adapt to this problem and, and build resilience within our community. So, as much as there are negative impacts associated with heat exposure, I think the work that the Heat and Health Research Incubator is doing to try and find solutions is so important. But I think as a community and as a population, as we move forward and we work together and as we adapt, I, I feel like it's not as doom and gloom as we might present it to be um, at some point. So that would sure. be my take-home message. Great. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, George. Ollie? Um, increase your air conditioning set point by four degrees Celsius <laughs> and move the air. <laughs> Great. Oh. Yeah. Thanks very much, James. I guess just a quick one for me in terms of the work that I'm doing with the children is that we're not trying to put children off being physically active in the heat. We're just trying to build a good, strong evidence base with which we can protect them, keep them cool, keep them safe, so they can continue what they're doing into the future. Great. And Adrian? I think the last thing is collaboration. I think these mm. are really big problems and they require lots of different people and lots of different organisations to help solve them, and I think that's what the Heat and Health Incubator is trying to do. Yeah, great. Thanks, Adrian. So let's uh, thank our panellists once again. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. <laughs>